So I think the kids can be dismissed for their Sunday school class, and if you'd like to jockey for a better seat, this is the good time to do that. <laughs> Good morning. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for the rich time that we enjoy bringing our voices together to express our love for you and to affirm your love for us. What a joy it is for us to do that. And now for us to continue to worship you through the careful listening to your word. We pray that you would help us to be good students of your word. More than anything else, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would fall upon your church right now, that you would minister to us through the agency of the spoken word and allow that word to find home in our hearts. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's a movie that came out in 1973. It was an interesting genre. I don't think the genre existed before. It's called an evangelical Christian horror film. So it's a, it was called The Thief in the Night, and it comes from the text that we're looking at today. Anyway, it takes place before the rapture. It, what happens is this girl by the name of Patty Myers, um, she's listening to a radio broadcast as she wakes up in the morning, and the announcer tells of millions of people who have suddenly disappeared and suggests that this might have been the rapture, which was spoken about in the Bible. The United Nations sets up a, an emergency government system called UNITE, which stands for United Nations Imperium of Total Emergency. That's pretty clever. At any rate, <laughs> several flashbacks happen as the movie begins, uh, which tell us a little bit about Patty's life before the rapture. <clears throat> it begins with Patty and her two friends, one of whom is an avid Christian, and the other one is avowed an atheist. And so they, the one considers Jesus Christ her Lord and Savior, and the other is far more worldly-minded. Now, Patty, she attends church, she reads her Bible, and because she's a regular church attender, she considers herself to be a Christian, although she, um, uh, she goes to a church where the pastor is discovered to be a, a non-believer himself. Um, she refuses to believe the warnings of her friends that uh, if she refuses to accept Jesus as her Lord and Savior, then she's going to have to go through the Great Tribulation. Uh, meanwhile, her husband is attending a different church, and he, in fact, is saved. The next morning, Patty wakes up. Her husband and millions of other people are suddenly gone. And Patty's conflicted because while she's not a Christian, she's not willing to give her life to Jesus. She's also not willing to take the mark of the beast, and so she, the rest of the film... She's trying to escape the government officials, the Unite officials, who eventually capture her. She escapes, and she's running again from the Unite government officials. They, they capture her again on a, on a bridge. She jumps off the bridge, and she dies. Well, then she wakes up because she discovers it's all been a dream, and she's greatly relieved. Her relief, however, is only short-lived because her alarm goes off, and the announcer goes on, and to say that millions of people are missing. <laughs> and she looks over and her husband is missing too and she realizes to her horror that she's been left behind. Now I remember seeing that film when I was a high school kid and our youth group put it on to, to scare the GBsers GB uh, out of us. Literally, and the idea was that uh, you need to get your life straightened out and you need to come to Jesus and if you don't, 
you're going to end up in facing the, the great tribulation. And it was used kind of as a way of manipulating decisions for Christ based on fear. The, the theology behind it had suddenly become very popular. Remember we talked last week about how Lindsay's book, um, uh, the late great planet Earth that had come out in the early 70s. And so this uh, theology had become very popular among evangelical Christians as the, um, the, the uh, view of end times, we call eschatology, um, based on these fiction works and more than on what the scripture actually says. And like I said, the title for the movie, A Thief and Knife, Thief in the Night comes from the text that we're looking at today from 1 Thessalonians 5.2, where we are warned about the second advent, the, the rapture, how it comes suddenly and unexpectedly like a thief in the night, and consequently, you don't want to find yourself unprepared. You don't want to be surprised. You want to be found ready and expecting when that happens. Take your Bible and please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 5.1. Now remember, Paul has only had a brief stay in Thessalonica, probably just a few months, but long enough that he's established the church and he's given them some basic foundation of, of the Christian faith. And so they have the essential doctrines. They know about Christ's death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, and his coming again, which they have come to believe is, is going to happen immediately. They're expecting Christ to return at any moment now. But they have some questions. If, if Jesus is just about ready to come, what about our friends who die? I mean, do they miss out on the rapture because they're dead? They won't be here when Christ comes. So they're missing out on this chance to be part of, of the rapture. And beyond that, the question is, well, where are our dead friends, our dead loved ones now between the time that Jesus comes with the saints and we are caught up to meet him in the air? And what kind of an existence do they have right now in this in-between time and in, and in what form? We talked about that uh, last week when Paul begins to deal with their, these concerns that they have about the great eschatological questions. There are four of them, the resurrection, no, see, the return, the resurrection, the rapture, and the reunion. So. Um, in fact, the Bible does have a lot to say about those four great events, but not all in one place. So we have to have a systematic way of gathering that information together. But the reality is that the Bible has told us everything we need to know, but not everything that we want to know. We still have questions. We still have essential uh, issues here. The point that we need to approach this with as students of the Bible is that we need to be very careful that we are not embroidering Paul's words with fanciful speculations of our own, that we are not stretching the text beyond what the apostle is intending to say. And let's be very careful that our theology does in fact come from scripture and not from fiction films and fiction books. Let's not be ignorant of what the Bible actually says. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where Paul begins to tackle this issue head on, the first question that the Thessalonians want to know from Paul is, if Christ is coming soon, how are we supposed to get ready for that? How do you prepare for that? And 
What's it going to look like? You know, when, when is he coming? They, they want to know that. I mean, it makes sense. I'm not trying to be critical of the Thessalonians. It's, it's, a, it's a logical question. If Jesus is coming soon, how do we get ready for that event? You know, what do we do in the meantime to prepare us for his coming? But beyond that, really, they're trying to nail down the timing of Jesus. They want to know when is he coming again? They're that's the question before him. And Paul gives them a very definite answer to that question. It is the same answer that Jesus gave to his disciples, and it's this. Nobody knows. Nobody knows when he's coming again. You cannot know that. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be preparing ourselves um, with, for when he comes. But that preparation does not need to include wild speculations. It does not need to include looking at everything on the news or in the newspaper and interpreting it in terms of Jesus is coming right away. We should prepare ourselves, but we should not alarm ourselves. So the very first thing that Paul says is making end time predictions is not the way to prepare for the return of Jesus. They wanna know about the timing of his return and Paul tells them right up front, you don't need to know that. It's, it's not for you to know. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. They're asking two questions. First, they're asking about the chronos. That's, you recognize that word as in a, a, chronograph, a chronographic watch. It, it, they're asking about chronos, which means just a specific point in time. And they're asking about the kairos, which is an event which takes place in time. They're asking, and Paul's giving two words, chronos and kairos. But Paul's evidently not making a distinction here. He's lumping them together. They're asking about, for a very practical reason, reason they want to know how do you prepare for the coming of Christ, this day of judgment um, that, that uh, Paul has been telling about. And then Paul tells them, it's not for you to know the date. I don't know. And Jesus himself said he didn't know. Jesus said, it's, it's not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority. So you don't know. You can't know. You're not supposed to know, nobody knows. That's what Jesus says, that's what Paul is reiterating here. And Jesus goes on to say, the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, the Thessalonians know that already because Paul has told it to him. That's why Paul says, I don't need to write to you more about that because you already know this stuff. You know very well that the day will come unexpectedly, verse two, you know that nobody knows the date. You know that nobody cannot know the date. Now, before we begin criticizing them for their interest in knowing this, we, we need to um, define some terms here because Paul gives us a clue here which is really important to understanding what Paul is trying to get at. In verse 15 of chapter 4, Paul is introducing the subject of the coming of the Lord. Notice the term, the coming of the Lord. And now, what does he call it? He calls it um, the day of the Lord. This is an important technical term in theology, the day of the Lord. 
The day of the Lord is, is an expression in prophetic writings that talks about the day that God comes to judge his enemies and set things right. So if you go clear back to eight centuries BC, when Amos is predicting about the fall of Samaria, and they're talking about what a wonderful thing it will be with, with, with the day of the Lord, what does Amos say? Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? The day of the Lord is a time of reckoning where God is, is dealing with evil and he's dealing with people who are oppressing God's people. So throughout history, when the Bible's talking about the day of the Lord, it's telling us all history is moving forward to a specific time, a day of reckoning when God's going to deal with evil. Now this really contrasts with the prevailing attitude of our day which talks about uh, evolution, that there is, there's nothing, a pattern about history. It's, it's purely random. It's, it, it's, it started nowhere, it's, it's going nowhere. It's just, it just is what it is. But the Bible is contrasting this to say, no, we're not talking about random events. We're talking about a sovereign God who initiated history, which called all history into being. The sovereign God of creation is moving history to conclude in a sovereign return of Christ and a day of reckoning, a day of the Lord. John Lilly writes, now it's man's day the day of man's ambition, man's pleasure, man's judging, man's glory. It is not, um, um, God is not in all his thoughts. How great the change from this day to the day of the Lord. Then the lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Now Paul begins to tell us something about the day of the Lord, and the first thing he tells us is that day will be very unexpected, like a thief in the night. Where are we, verse three? Uh, no, still, still in verse two. Like a thief in the night. Now, this analogy is not, does not originate in Paul. This is found in several New Testament resources, especially Jesus talked about the day will be like a thief in the night. So this is not new to Paul, it occurs elsewhere. What do we know about a thief in the night? Well, we know that thieves come at night and they rarely announce their intentions. Is that fair, Brian? They, they, they rarely tell you when they're coming. So no one knows when they're coming. That's the whole point. What's that? Oh, yeah. I'll get to that in a minute. Okay, so here's Paul, and he's essentially following up a, a, a major teaching that Jesus had about his return. What is it going to look like? What are, what are the events like when Jesus returns? If you want to follow me along, I'm, I'm going to quote from Matthew 24, verse thir beginning of verse 36. Now, concerning that day and hour, what? No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered into the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept, all, swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding in the mill. <coughs> Excuse me. One will be taken, one will be left. Therefore, stay awake, 
for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. Mark reiterates this very same thing, Mark 13, 52, concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Unfortunately, however, this very plain teaching that nobody knows, nobody can knows, nobody's supposed to know, does not keep history from being littered with number of people who have made calculations on the Lord's return. Um, there, was a, in, there was a great awakening that took place. It was called the Second Great Awakening in America in the early 1800s. An interesting thing happened at the conclusion of the great awake, Second Great Awakening was the um, creation of several errant religious directions. The one is Mormonism, 18. 30, Joseph Smith, dabbling in a cult, invents Mormonism. The second was dispensationalism. Um, John Darby, in the in 1830s, he's fooling around with the book of Revelation, and he invents dispensationalism. And the third, uh, invented in 1833 by William Miller, published that he, uh, he'd done this study, mostly in the book of Daniel, based on the 2300 days of Daniel, and he concluded that Jesus was going to come sometime between March 21, 1843 and March 21, 1844. And you know what happened? Nothing. So he had an idea. You know, well, maybe I did the math wrong. So he, he goes back to his math table and he, he predicts again, Jesus is going to come April 18, 1844. And nothing happened. And then he says, well, I know what it is. I was using the rabbinic calendar instead of this other calendar. So here it is. This is my final offer, October 22nd, 1844. And a lot of his followers were so persuaded that Christ was going to come on that date. They sold their farms. They sold their homes. They sold their possessions. They went to this place where they were going to await the arrival of Jesus and nothing happened, and it's called the great disappointment. But that's not the end of it. So from that, from Miller's predictions, spawned the Seventh-day Adventist movement. And they went back to the calculator, and they figured some stuff out, and they said, whoa, 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 wait. What happened was Jesus did come, but not all the way. So what Jesus did was he moved from the holy place to the holy of holy places in heaven. And now he's doing this great, it's called the investigative judgment. He's reading the books. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. He's reading the books, and I'm thinking, man, he's a slow reader. It's been 140 years, you know. G.K. Beale notes that there are several occurrences where other groups have done the same thing. Uh, in October of 1992, there were 20,000 Korean Christians who had been told that Jesus was going to arrive on this specific date, and they too sold their homes, they sold their businesses, they sold their property, and again, nothing happened. And they, there was such despair over the fact that they were told that Jesus was going to arrive at this particular date, and he failed to do so. 
many of them committed suicide because they just couldn't deal with the loss and the disillusionment that took place there. And Beale writes, without exception, the expectations of each of these groups throughout history have been dashed. Duh. But that doesn't stop anybody. You know, today you can go on the internet and you can find the Rapture Index. So this guy started the Rapture Index in 1987. He's got 45 categories. Each category is worth five points for a total of, what is that, 225 points. And it's, it's like, he calls it the Dow Jones Industrial Average of the Rapture, or a speedometer that tells you how soon and how likely the Rapture is to take place. Right now, as of February 5, that was the latest input, we're at 186, which is not the highest out of 225. The highest occurred in November, 6, November of 2016. I don't remember exactly what date, and I don't remember what happened there, but the point is, nothing's happening. You know, we get all, we, we read stuff in the, in the paper about war in Israel and Gaza and Ukraine, and we get all jazzed up. Oh, Jesus must be coming soon. He'll come when he, when he's ready, you know, not, not when you've figured out the right numbers and, and, and calculated. Jesus said himself, no one knows. The angels don't know. I don't know. Only God knows that. Anybody who tells you that they know doesn't know. And I have run into people who say, well, we don't know the day or the hour, but we're pretty close on the week and the month. Jesus says that event will be like a thief in the night. It will be sudden, it will be unexpected, it's sure to happen, but you don't know when. I had a thief in the night experience too. I, had a, I got broke into and robbed in the middle of the night, and I felt, well, once I, I, one, I, I felt disappointed and, and violated, and I felt kind of stupid because I failed to lock the door or something like that. You know, how did they get in to, to rob me? I'm sure many of you also have thief in the night experience deep in the night experiences. The difference between your experience and my experience is nobody's paying you to stand up here and tell us about your story. <laughs> any rate, verse three tells us that while people are saying peace and safety, they, they imagine that they're secure. They imagine there's no threats to their lives. Destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So first, the, the, the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night, and second, destruction comes like labor pains. Now, both of these illustrations, both of these illustrations teach about the suddenness of Christ's coming. It, it's sudden in the middle of the night with no expectations that uh, the, the burglar comes. It's sudden that uh, at the end of uh, labor when somebody's expecting, it's still sudden when they go into labor pains because once it begins, you can't stop. You, you're going to ride it out. There's, there's no end to it. It's, so if you put these two illustrations together, the, the one is sudden and unexpected like a thief in the night, and the other is sudden and unavoidable like once labor pains begin. In the first case, there's no warning, and in the second case, there's no escape. Again, the Thessalonians are curious because they want to find out the date. They want to know when Jesus is coming. And Paul tells them, well, this much you can know. It will be sudden. It will be unexpected. It will be unavoidable. And you don't know when. Nobody knows when. But that doesn't mean you can't prepare. You can 
be prepared and ready. And that's the whole point of the text before us today. So how can we be ready and expecting for Christ's return so that we are not caught off guard? Verse, where are we? Verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. So again, the apostle is saying there's no need for us to be alarmed by the prospects of the Lord coming, that it should take us by surprise. Now here is the, the key word that Paul is using here, that we are taken by surprise. There's two reasons why a person might be surprised when a burglar breaks in. One, he doesn't know, we've already covered that ground, and two, he's not awake. There's nothing you can do about the first case because you can't know, but there is something you can do about the second case. You can be awake. The solution to our problem, therefore, lies not in knowing when he comes or when he will come. The solution lies in us staying awake, being alert, that we are not caught off guard at the parousia. Remember, that just means the, the arrival of Jesus, the second coming, the, the second advent. That when he comes, we'll be ready, we will not be taken by surprise. And that, of course, is the point back to Matthew 24 that Jesus was making. He says, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. He would not have let his house be broken into. And then Paul's using that same metaphor here, and he says, let's not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. Be ready, be awake, be watchful. How are we to be watchful? Well, not being watchful for the signs of the times, for one. Not looking in the newspaper to prove that Jesus is coming in your lifetime or in the next five years. To be watchful here is to look with anticipation at the return of Christ and that we are living by a standard which is different from the standard which governs the rest of the world. We will live in a way that is, that is markedly different from everyone who thinks that this life is all that there is. So make the most of it now. We will watch because we are expecting. Verse 6 says, keep awake and be sober. This does not mean that you need to abstain from alcohol. Everybody's going, Whew. everyone except Terry Johnson. It means that we are serious, that we're self-controlled, that we're calm, that we're not frivolous, that we're not distracted by alarming world events. Verse 8. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, several times Paul, throughout his letters, makes a similar reference to putting on armor, and his simple point is that we should be battle-ready. Now, he, he uses this um, analogy in different places, but he assigns different things to the, the different armaments. So he's not trying to prove that the breastplate is this and the helmet is that, because, you know, look back to uh, Ephesians chapter 6, where he, he kind of feels free to vary the symbolism here. In Ephesians chapter 6, the breastplate is righteousness, 
and the helmet is salvation. Here he talks about the breastplate and the helmet, which together form that familiar triad. Remember, he's been going back to this, this triad of graces that he, he named for us in chapter 1, verse 3, faith, hope, and love. But he, he says faith, love, and hope. But that's a familiar triad that Paul keeps bringing back. Anyway, to, to put on this breastplate of faith and love means that we live by faith. And living by faith just simply means you believe God's word and you believe what God said is true. And you have ample reason because he's been true and nothing but true to you in the past. You have every reason to have faith that he will be true to you in the future. And so you trust in his promises. You, you trust in his provision, in his provision of his son, Jesus Christ. And much of the life of faith is just simply to learn to Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. That's what living a life of faith is all about. It's the, it's the, the realization that we, we want to live in accordance with the word of God. And if we do that, we, we won't go wrong. The problem is that you can affirm what I've said to be true, that you trust in God, you believe in his word, right up until the point where somebody close to you dies or you experience personal tragedy or a hardship, in all of those cases, the world will say, aha, you trust in a God whom you say is good and loving, and yet how could a loving God allow these tragedies to happen? And if you're just looking at the, the event itself, if you're just looking at the, the consequences of those events, you might also be trusted, tempted to say, you know, you're right, how could a good God allow such rotten things to happen in life. And you're drawn away from having faith in him. Now, imagine, as an example, you are at standing in Jerusalem at the foot of the cross while two thieves and an insurrectionist are being executed on the cross. What would be going through your mind at that time? And what conclusion would you be tempted to come to? If you didn't have the scripture, I mean, if you didn't know what was really happening there, would you come to the conclusion that what's taking place here is that God in his love and in his mercy and in his grace is going about saving billions of souls for his kingdom? Or would you be rather tempted to conclude, here's a guy who is innocent, who's being uh, driven by this political and religious machine, who's murdering a perfectly innocent man for no cause whatsoever. Which of those conclusions are you naturally going to come to if you didn't know what God has said in his work? Would you be tempted to think that this thing that I'm observing is, is the epitome of the hate and the bitterness of this world, the indifference of God, that he just allows such things to happen. When we have faith, when we trust God, we say, I don't understand that. I can't begin to fathom it. But this is what I know, that I have a God who is loving and gracious and whose plan is far beyond my imagination or ability to understand. And that's what the life of faith is all about. It's taking God at his word. 
And that's what Paul's talking about when he says you have to, you, we, we need to put on this breastplate, this thing that guards us, that protects us. We need to be armored from the enemy's assault by having this protection of faith in him, faith and love. Oh, I'm running long. Then there's hope, verse 8. Um, Paul says into the Romans that what hope is, he says, hope is that we are eagerly awaiting our adoption as sons, our re the redemption of our bodies. That is ultimately the Christian hope, that we will be saved, that we are adopted as his sons, we will not be found guilty and condemned, but we will be resurrected. We talked about this last week, we'll be resurrected. So we hope for the return of Christ, we hope for the resurrection of the dead, and we hope for the eternal life which has been promised us in Christ Jesus. And so Paul uses that, that imagery of the, the breastplate of faith and love, the helmet of hope of salvation to tell us this is how we guard ourselves from the enemy's evil darts, how we protect ourselves from being sucked into the way the world thinks. So how is it then again that we are to prepare for Jesus' coming? We live by faith. We live in love, and we live with hope. Verse 9. But God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. He says, God did not appoint you. God did not destine you to suffer wrath. What wrath is he talking about? The wrath of fearful condemnation for the sins that we deserve. You are not going to be held accountable on that day of judgment, but you are going to receive salvation. Salvation is to be rescued. Rescued from what? From the wrath of God, from God's anger, from God's indignation against sin, from God's penalty. And how is that? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, here's a really fascinating contrapositioning of the death of Christ and the life of the Christian. That he died our death so that we could live his life. That we, we are, our life is entirely due to his death. Not only are we then reprieved because we are guilty sinners, something far more fascinating, we are reconciled with God. We are adopted as his sons and daughters. And Paul says, this is available to all, and he says here, whether they are awake or asleep at the parousia, at the second coming, whether they are awake or asleep. Now, again, he's not referencing awake or asleep that he used in verse 6, where he talks about the morality of life and faith versus the immorality of, of the life of, of the sinner. He's using it more in the sense of what he was talking about in 4.15. Remember when he's talking about those that are awake or asleep at the time of his second coming, and he's meaning those who are dead or who are alive. So he's not talking about morally awake or asleep. He's talking about those who are physically dead or alive when the second coming happens. And his point is that... All of them will be included um, in this grand reward, this grand reunion, this grand resurrection, and our everlasting life with Christ when, when he comes again. Verse 11, 
Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So God means for the church to be a community of mutual encouragement and support. Um, in 4.18, he says, comfort one another. In 5.11, he says, encourage one another, build each other up. All of that goes back to chapter 4, verse 9, where he's telling us to love one another. It's, it's about this mutuality of care, that in the church, we do not hire professional caregivers. We're all supposed to be the caregivers. There's a place for the counselors. There's a place for the pastors. There's a place for professional comforters. But it is all, all our role to love one another, to encourage one another, to build each other up. It's not one person's job. It's not the paid guy's job. That's the role of the church. So much so that if the church is not mutually encouraging and comforting, it's not a church. It might be an educational institution, but it's not a church. No community can call itself Christian if it's not characterized by mutual encouragement and love. So what does that look like? Well, a number of things. Some of the obvious, easy things to do to show mutual encouragement and love and, and, and comfort, you greet each other when you come in. You shake each other's hands. If you're comfortable and it's not me, you can hug each other. And, and, and we affirm each other that way. Or it can be far more costly than that. You know, it's, it's really costly to be a friend to someone. It's really costly to remain loyal when they've offended you. It can be real costly to show genuine sympathy with someone because, you know, I'm not talking about sending them a sympathy card when their loved one dies. I'm talking about hurting with them, weeping with those who weep. That's costly kind of, of love. That's what I'm talking about, is this ministry of comfort. Because we realize that there is this coming day of the Lord, this day of, of, of reckoning, this day of, of judgment. And Paul tells us, yeah, that's coming. And you don't know when. But you do know how to prepare yourself for it. You don't know the date. No one can know the date. But you can prepare yourself in advance. And how do you do that? Well, the most obvious way is to make sure you're saved so that when he comes, you're going to be included when he comes. The most obvious way of preparing for the Lord's coming is to have him find us faithfully doing what we're supposed to be doing. So much of those end-time teachings and notions of Christians is that they have to somehow get themselves ready by doing something up above and beyond. They have to do something special, something way beyond just trusting in the gospel. And I remember those shock sermons that were given to especially youth groups, suggesting that they better not be caught up in some act of sin when the Lord returns, or perhaps they also would get swept away in the judgment, or more likely they'd be left behind at the rapture. And the promises of Jesus, however, assure us that the day of the Lord for us is a time of reward, is a time of God's justification, it's a time of, of forgiveness, it's a time of eternal life. Jesus said, truly, Truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not, he does not come into judgment, but he's passed from death to life. Again, verse 2, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And Paul says, but you, brothers, are not in darkness, that that day should surprise you like a thief.
Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit is at work in this church and that through your Spirit we are bringing praise and worship to you through your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we are first and foremost biblical Christians, not Calvinists, Arminians, amillennialists, premillennialists, pre-trib, that whatever we believe, we find it only from the Word of God and not from somebody's fanciful imagination. Father, I pray that based on the foundation of this truth, your Spirit moves us forward to be effective to our community and to one another and effective in bringing you the praise that you are richly worthy of. Confident that this is your will for this church, and so I pray it in the powerful name of Jesus. Please stand to reiterate what uh, 